sitting on the side of a mountain with his disciples gathered at his feet and the crowd pressing in, Jesus spoke these words. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. I'll address the shirt I'm wearing in a moment. But first, as we let what are arguably the most challenging words ever spoken by Jesus settle on us, join me in praying for the Spirit to teach us to grant us humility, to receive the weight of what it is that Jesus calls us to, and to embrace this good inversion that is the upside down way of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. God, here we gather together as your church, your family, God. And already we know the words spoken by your son Jesus that we've read and heard here today are challenging and intense. And yet we know that you are a God who loves us right now as we are in this moment. We know that your spirit is already here, present, and so we welcome you. And we invite you to teach us. Give us humble hearts to receive the challenging words you have for us this morning, God, so that we might continue to become more like your son, Jesus, and as a body of believers that we would become the church you envision. God, I pray for myself this morning that I would not get in the way of what you want to do, but instead that you would give me your words to speak, words that are for you and from you, that make much of you and point to you and draw us deeper into intimately knowing you. We love you so much, God. Your name we pray. Amen. Our portion of scripture for today is, in my view, the most challenging thing Jesus directs us to do. And on top of that, this nonviolent type of resistance and enemy love that Jesus calls us to breaks into our present day cultural moment in intensely subversive ways. This is not a comfortable or even inspiring teaching from Jesus. But it is imperative to the way of Jesus, to breaking the cycle of violence and learning fully what it really means to be loved by God, to love God, and to love our neighbor. In short, 
It's just deeply intense. However, I think it's so intense that we have the propensity to disregard the call to love our enemy. We just cruise right by it. And so in an attempt to provocatively usher us into what this means today, 2018, October 7th, I've chosen to wear the face and posture of Colin Kaepernick because his decision to kneel during the anthem in protest to violence being done to black people is about as volatile of a present day relatable situation that there has been in recent memory. The reality is we all have opinions on it. We all know what I'm talking about. We can all begin to envision the argument happening from both sides. And I'm aware of how this runs sideways to how many of us might feel about him or those on the other side of the debate for that matter. And so that is in my estimation now causing us to look our enemy in the face, so to speak. And the truth is, I spent a lot of time praying, gave a lot of energy, thinking, talked to a lot of people about wearing the shirt, and I haven't done it flippantly. However, as I work to illuminate the teachings of Jesus so that we might pay attention to them now in this present day, I know we cannot be ashamed of preaching and hearing these words that Jesus himself spoke to his followers. His nonviolent resistance and enemy love is about as upside down as we can get in our present day, just as it was when Jesus first spoke the words. So at the risk of sounding trite, I want us to walk away today with a profound conviction to love our enemies as Jesus says to do. And it's my attempt to let us face, quite literally, one who many in our current culture deem an enemy. And if you don't think of Colin Kaepernick that way, then it's likely that you think of those on the other side of the debate that way, and now we are faced with those enemies too. We are all faced with our enemies. In the midst of an intensely partisan time, Jesus' words and way of living are not even bipartisan, but utterly radical to all sides everywhere. Jesus has this unique third way that he creates and calls for us to go. And so I'm looking to create, by wearing a shirt, a present day distinction about how subversive the call of Jesus is. Because I don't believe we can grasp the depth of what Jesus is saying if we do not confront our own enemies in the present day. So I'm trusting the spirit to lead us through our portion of scripture today. And in doing that, I'm inviting all of us to name and identify those who are our enemies. Because it's not enough to just say, love your enemies, because Jesus said it. Otherwise, for those of us who follow Jesus, we'd already be doing that and loving our enemies and our whole world would look completely different for all who proclaim to follow Jesus if they were in fact loving their enemies. It is a hard thing to do. And I want to confront our comfort and propensity to cruise by these challenging words of Jesus. I guess I'm willing to be a little bit dramatic to do it. So, now that I've paved the road on which we are walking this morning, 
Let's enter back into the deeply challenging but intriguingly hopeful words of Jesus spoken to his disciples as they gathered at his feet on the side of a mountain. Up to this point, Jesus has been speaking as the one who has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything that God's been doing from the beginning is being fulfilled in Jesus. It is as if Jesus is what God has been saying all along. So in doing this, he's reminding people that what they've heard And he's now teaching them is the fullness of what the law was meant to be. This is what God had in mind all along, he says. So our first endeavor into what they've heard it said and what Jesus says now begins in Matthew 5, 38. He says this, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. The language of resistance here can be a bit confusing, right? Like, shouldn't we resist evil? Didn't Jesus himself resist evil? Walter Wink calls this translation an under-translation of the phrase, do not resist. He says there's more to it. More accurately, it means to stand against evil. We're not supposed to simply flee when evil's happening, but we stand against. And so Jesus is going to paint a picture of how to do that. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is he's indicating that we do not resist evil on its own terms because when we do that, we create an unending spiral of violence. And so Jesus gives us three examples of how to take a stand to end the cycle of violence. Nonviolent resistance in action, if you will. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarizes it more boldly and to the point when he says, suffering willingly endured is stronger than evil. The first example, Jesus says, if you've been struck on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. So what does that mean? Does it mean that you just stand there and you endure a beating? I don't think so. What Jesus is doing when he gives us these three examples is he's subverting the power structure. So at that time, one who would be hit on the right cheek would have been hit with a backhand. That's how you would get hit on the right cheek. I was going to demonstrate, but I felt like it was already a little tense in here and I didn't need to do that. (laughs) To get hit on the right cheek is to get hit by a backhand. One who gets hit on the right cheek by a backhand is one who is at the power of the oppressor. Often the way in which an owner would hit a slave with a backhand. Nobody in that time would ever hit anybody with their left hand. So when Jesus says to turn the other cheek, he doesn't mean just turn around and get pummeled. He says, here's the deal now, if you wanna hit me on this cheek, you gotta do it with a closed fist. We're now equals. I have dignity too. Jesus is teaching his followers in the midst of, 
of oppression, that this is how you resist evil and stand against it being done to you. They might continue to hit you, but now they are not hitting you as one who has power over you, but as equals, both of you with your dignity restored. Jesus is always subverting the power structure. The second thing that Jesus goes on to do, he says, give up your coat. They take you to court, which someone who has power is able to do, take you to court and they steal your shirt. He's like, well, just give them your coat too. And we're like, uh, what? Just give them more clothes? Is that what we're supposed to do? No, the, the coat, the outer coat, had a different kind of meaning to a first century person. That was the most expensive garment that they owned. And it was used for a lot of things. It was used for like a blanket or a sleeping bag as well as this outer coat. So he says, if you lose your shirt, give them your coat. But what's interesting about that is first century people didn't spend a whole lot of time wearing underwear. It's not really a thing. Your, your shirt that you, they took from you was like your undergarment. So he's saying, when they take your shirt, get naked. And it's that like weirdly subversive thing. Because what happened in that culture when you were naked is that you were not the one who was in fact shamed. Those who looked on you were the ones who were shamed. They did not want to look at a naked person walking down the street. So if you've been sued for your shirt and you give your coat and you're like, all right, I'm out. And you're just a naked person walking down the street. And I think Jesus means it to be this silly too. Right, like now everybody is going, hold on, why is there a naked person walking down the street? Who took his stuff? Get it back to him. You've again, you've subverted the power structure and you've given those who are at the mercy of the powers that be a way to resist without violence. And then his third example is to go another mile with a Roman guard who's asked, you to carry his stuff. And what's interesting about this is we're pretty familiar with the phrase, go the extra mile, right? Go the extra mile. I mean, I was a basketball coach for seven years and I was like, hey guys, we gotta go the extra mile. And they're like, do you mean run more? Yes, but we're gonna go the extra mile. We just thought it means work harder, right? Just, just, just keep going a little farther than you thought you could go. Jesus means something completely different when he talks about going the extra mile. See, again, in the first century, a Roman guard, by rule of the Roman guard and law, could ask a citizen, typically a Jewish citizen, to carry their gear for one mile. And what was often the case, there were mile markers always on the road, so you knew when a mile was up. And what would typically happen, I'm sure, is that this one officer would say, carry my gear, and you would be like, I have to. And you would grumpily carry it, and you'd get to your mile marker, and you knew it, and he knew it, and you'd throw it down, and you'd carry on your way. Like, dang, the man got me again. Another thing that just reminds me that I'm not free, that I don't have worth, that I don't have dignity. So now Jesus says, okay, well, when they ask you to do that, go another mile. But he wasn't just asking his followers to do that because they needed to be servant-hearted. 
He was upending the power structures in play that were oppressing them. The moment that they began to carry an officer's gear another mile, now the officer was in a bind because they had a strict rule that you could only force a citizen to take it one mile. They were in a place in which now they were going to be in trouble if you kept carrying their gear. And so now you're carrying their gear an extra mile and they're like, hey, you need to put my gear down. You're like, no, I got it, right? And everybody's looking at them and immediately the whole thing's been flipped upside down and you've reasserted that you have dignity as well. You flattened the power hierarchy at play. Do you think that that officer is going to ask you to carry his gear again? No, he doesn't want to deal with that. Jesus is saying, here's another way to resist the evil being done to you. You see, you see how upside down all of this is. And yet at this point in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he still has not used the word love. It's interesting how Jesus is about to introduce us to the power of a concept. The, the fulcrum of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount swings on this concept of love. What's he gonna do with that? Here's what he says next. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you in that way. You will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. To call forth an enemy was not an empty concept to these disciples. They knew an enemy. Jesus himself knew what an enemy was. And yet he still takes this resistance piece a step further and what he does is he reinitiates us with the foundation of all of his teaching love. According to Jesus, the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. And the biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. This is what it all comes down to. And Jesus' message of loving our enemy is a hard one for us to hear. We, we are experiencing so much that's polarized in our present time right now. And I'd actually say then that's why we need to hear what Jesus has to say about this that takes us above the polarization that we encounter. We cannot simply just roll with the spirit of loving our enemies. That's a good idea. And in so doing, avoid jumping into the serious practice it actually requires. And I don't know a better example of such practice than following Jesus to the end of his life.
And what we've heard from Jesus so far today in this Sermon on the Mount is this, we are to love our enemies, pray for them and forgive them. To love our enemies is a command. Jesus ends the whole Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 by saying it's so much a command that if you decide to do it, if you listen and obey, you build your house, your foundation on rock, you stand in the midst of the storm. But if you disobey, if you hear and you don't care and you walk away, your foundation falls apart. You built it on sand. He says, love your enemies, pray for them and forgive them. And I'll tell you what, that sounds impossible, doesn't it? And if it seems impossible, then truly we need Jesus to show us the way. Because it's by the same spirit of God who lived in Jesus that now lives in us, his disciples, that allow us to move forward in obeying such challenging commands. That's the only way. And so as Jesus is prone to do, he goes first and shows us the way, all the way to the cross. And just begin now to envision Jesus on the cross. Jürgen Moltmann summarizes it like this. Jesus did not die cursing his enemies, but with a prayer for them on his lips. Jesus has been through it. When Jesus was arrested, they took him and they beat him. They whipped him within inches of his life. They spit on him. They mocked him. They took a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. Then they gave him his killing device and put it on his back and said, carry that to the hill on which you will die. All the while, what is Jesus' response? He just keeps going. Carries the cross up to the top of the hill. Drops the cross on the ground. They nail him to this cross. Thrust him up. And there Jesus is. Hanging from the cross. Looking down at those who are killing him. And here's what he says in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Jesus did not die cursing his enemies, but with a prayer for them on his lips. The African church father and theologian Augustine comments on Jesus praying for those killing him when he was hanging on the cross by saying, they were raging, but he was praying. For to follow the way of Jesus, are we raging or are we praying? And then Augustine poses this question. He says, who would have remained to praise the Lord if he had wanted to avenge himself on his enemies? Who would have remained? And now if you remember to Acts chapter two, there's this moment after Jesus has been crucified, raised to the dead, he meets with his followers and he says, hey, stay put, I'm gonna go be with the father and, and it'll happen, just wait. So they're all gathered in a room on Pentecost 
And as they're gathered in this room in Acts 2, the Spirit falls on them. And they're all filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Love poured out. And all kinds of stuff is going on because now everybody's talking in a bunch of different languages. There's sounds that people don't recognize. So crowds start rumbling in to see what's going on. And as these crowds come in, one man stands up to preach, Peter. And you might be surprised that the people that Peter is about to preach to are those who Jesus had been praying for as he hung from the cross. Some of those very people likely saw Jesus hanging on the cross. And now here they are before Peter. And as he's preaching, full of the Holy Spirit, transformed Peter, he calls out all of those who were a part of murdering Jesus. Not the most seeker-sensitive sermon you could imagine. You all killed Jesus. Do you want to follow him? And yet they're cut to the heart. In preparation for a moment such as this, those thousands of people had already been lifted up in prayer by the one who died. It turns out that as those thousands were cut to the heart, they surrendered their lives to Jesus as the Holy Spirit filled them with supernatural love the ultimate miracle of enemy love embodied first by Jesus is that thousands of people chose to follow and believe in the one they had murdered. And this too is my story. For I was once an enemy of Jesus. And he looked down at me from the cross and ask God to forgive me for I didn't know what I was doing. And yet, we are the body of Christ, the church today gathered here in this place because Jesus prayed for his enemies from the cross instead of wanting to kill them. It's not a coincidence that the enemy love of Jesus initiated this movement of his church. He prayed for those who killed them, killed him. And then they chose to follow him. Will we follow him today? For when we move toward our enemy in love, we simultaneously move together toward God as his upside down kingdom so that it might be on earth as it is in heaven. Will you follow Jesus along the way of enemy love? And as we give God the last word in our time here of preaching, perhaps you can ask God now to reveal your enemies to you. Perhaps you can begin to pray for them to forgive them, or perhaps you have to ask God to forgive the enemy within. You're envisioning Jesus hanging on that cross looking at you too, saying you are forgiven for you don't know what you do. Whatever it is you need to take before the Lord, I wanna just give you a handful of moments to do that and then I'll lead us into communion.
in a few. God, as you are with us now, we are struck by the power and the weight and the conviction of the words of your son, Jesus. We are challenged about what it means to turn the other cheek, to give our coat, to go the extra mile. We're challenged that you then take us even deeper still and call us to love our enemies and pray for them. And then God, we see the picture of your son Jesus on the cross, dying at the hands of his enemies, praying out forgiveness. If we go, how is this possible? So God, we invite your spirit to fill us with love and send us with power so that it might be possible for us to, your children, your upside down kingdom, to love our enemies, to pray for them and forgive them. Help us to engage the hard work of naming and identifying those who are our enemies so that we might in fact begin to love, pray and forgive and move towards them. God, this is hard, but you are worth it. We love you. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.